Welcome to Banking in the Shadows, a podcast that shines a spotlight on the worlds of financial and cybercrime, how it impacts the global financial system and the people, organisations and agencies tasked with fighting it. Hi, I'm Anita Horser, Europe Editor at The Banker. On today's episode of Banking in the Shadows, we're looking at the heightened sanctions environment global banks face following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since the war began, more than 30 countries have implemented thousands of sanctions against Russian entities, goods and individuals. But are they working? How challenging is the current environment for banks? And are third countries potentially helping Russia evade sanctions? To help me answer these questions, I'm joined by our guest, Vincent Heinz, Standard Chartered Bank's Regional Head of Financial Crime Compliance in Europe and the Americas, where he oversees the bank's financial crime compliance program, including anti-money laundering, counter-terrorism financing, sanctions, fraud, and anti-bribery and corruption. Before taking on his current role, Vincent was global head of AML at Japan's MUFG Bank and previously spent five years as regulatory enforcement counsel at the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. He also spent 15 years working as a prosecutor in New York. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anita. It's great to be with you today. We're more than a year into the war in Ukraine. The EU, I think they're on their 10th sanctions package. And the US Treasury Department has imposed more than 2,700 sanctions against Russia. Now, I know, Vincent, that Standard Chartered doesn't have a presence in Russia. But as someone in charge of ensuring the banks complies with sanctions, is it too early to say whether the sanctions are working or not? I think we have mixed indications, Anita, at this point in terms of the efficacy of the various sanctions regimes that you've mentioned. When we consider the question of the efficacy of the sanctions regimes that are in place, Anita, we have to step back and consider the policy objectives behind the sanctions. Not among the policy objectives are imploding the Russian economy completely and forever, not affecting regime change in Moscow, um, and not isolating Russia um, completely and totally from the world economy. The aim of the sanctions is to impair and degrade the capability of the Russian Federation to wage war in Ukraine. With that as the policy objective, I think it is too early to say whether from a strategic perspective, the sanctions worked or have worked, so to speak. That all said, we work very closely with our industry partners and with government agencies uh, in this space. And the reporting that I'm uh, reading and, and uh, conversations I'm hearing with those partners indicates that, in fact, to date, the sanctions are having an impact, a significant impact on Vladimir Putin's war-making capability. This is um, in two particular respects. The first overall has to do with his ability to restore and sustain the level of conventional uh, uh, 
ammunition and ordnance required for his battlefield operations. Uh, one data point in this context came to me in the form of a consumption rate of one year's worth of ammunition production being consumed every month in combat by the Russian Federation. So clearly that's not sustainable. And the sanctions are having a direct impact on his ability to um, manufacture and distribute ammunition. The other place where there is a direct impact as is being reported has to do with various electronic components, typically components that have to be sourced from advanced countries that enable digital 21st century quality communications, navigation and targeting systems to operate. There is a significant impact being observed in his ability to source these types of components. And indeed, there is a strong understanding uh, in official circles and within uh, some of, of the banking industry that he has deliberately tasked his intelligence services to help him bypass the sanctioned corridors so he can source these commodities for the war-making effort. So yes, I think there are some clear impacts, but history will tell how decisive they will be. People often talk about this concept of fortress Russia, that it's you know been able to protect itself from international sanctions. Do you think to a certain extent that's true? To a, cer a certain extent, it is true. The, the Russian econ economy has not imploded. Um, Putin remains in power. Um, food uh, security does not seem to be a, a particularly prevalent issue across the country. And they have adapted and improvised. However, um, even as they're able to adjust and evolve and make changes, their ability to source certain components um, is inextricably linked to supply chains to which they do not have direct access at this time. Um, that they cannot compensate for locally in some type of homegrown uh, technology um, uh, renaissance or campaign. They have to source these things cross-border, and that is where uh, the Russian Federation is in trouble. One question I sort of, I, I wrote a story on, on, on Russian sanctions a couple of months back for the banker. And, and one question that seemed to keep cropping up a lot is why haven't all of Russia's banks or its economy been sanctioned? It's a great question. The, the policy driver, as mentioned, really has to do with the Russian milita military machine, um, as opposed to isolating the country completely. Um, we have to be mindful that when comprehensive sanctions are imposed, um, there will be uh, broad economic and social impacts, uh, not only within the targeted country, but in neighboring countries that engage in trade. And, and that ultimately cascades down uh, to the average person, the average family. So I think there's consideration to a more tailored, targeted sanctions regime that balances the desire to impair the war-making capability um, with the parallel desire not to unduly punish the Russian population. And indeed, um, uh, Putin and his, uh, uh, his leadership are very adept at taking the fact of the sanctions and using them to support their propaganda domestically and internationally. Um, so I, I think all of those factors weigh into the approach that the authorities have taken, um, which creates an interesting compliance problem because in some ways it's simpler for a financial institution to comply with comprehensive sanctions, such as in the case of 
North Korea, and it is a much more complex exercise to comply with uh, hundreds or thousands of designations, as, as you've pointed out. And also, I think there's questions around how can sanctions be effective when Russia is still earning so much money from oil and gas exports and, and redirecting those crude oil exports from the EU to countries such as China, India, the UAE, and Turkey. That That's absolutely a valid observation. Um, there's no question that uh, Russia will seek to, to um, exploit the opportunity to market its petroleum exports um, in the face of these targeted sanctions and that the cash flow um, coming into the country will potentially continue, though it will be degraded because the corridors for that cash to move cross-border are more restricted and are under heightened surveillance, uh, both from banks as well as from the authorities. So, uh, indeed, the the oil and production, the production and distribution of oil remain very important uh, capability to Mr. Putin um, and. In no way should we expect naively to think that these sanctions are going to somehow uh, uh, eliminate his ability to generate revenue. His problem, fundamentally, as we understand it, is his ability to deploy that revenue to obtain the resources he needs to fight the war. That is where he has trouble. And uh, we'll see how ultimately that impacts uh, events on the battlefield over the coming months and perhaps unfortunately years. So Russia hasn't been sanctioned like North Korea in the sense of the extent um, of the sanctions. But one interesting aspect is that certain countries haven't even imposed any sanctions against Russia. So while Russia may appear to be isolated from the rest of the world, you have a number of countries in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and these are regions where Standard Chartered does a lot of business, and they're still trading and, and doing business with Russia. So, Vincent, I wonder what does that mean for you as a bank? Does it make it more difficult to do business in these regions? A review of the, the voting at the UN General Assembly both a year ago and uh, in the last month absolutely um, provides grist for the, the point of your question, Anita. There are countries that have chosen to take uh, a middle path and either abstain in um, uh, diplomatic circles from condemning the attack and or continuing uh, with normalized economic relations with Russia for reasons sufficient to themselves. The resulting problem of having an uneven uh, sanctions regime across the globe absolutely creates complexities for any economic actors, not just banks, that seek to do business globally, uh, including countries that are sitting across that spectrum when it comes to Russia sanctions. The effort, uh, as we understand it, by the Russian Federation and its um, intelligence community and other organizations operating on its behalf, we believe absolutely will seek to exploit those opportunities to bypass sanctions, not only in terms of cross-border trade and cash transactions, but in the uh, shipment movement and import of electronic components and uh, key uh, 
material required to sustain uh, the manufacture of munitions, to uh, sustain the uh, manufacture and arming of drones, including in Iran, uh, which are being shipped into Russia. So there's no question this creates a new complicated risk environment, not only for banks that operate in the countries we're talking about, the, the countries that are sustaining or maintaining their relationships with Russia, but broadly, as we think about the problem, to the extent this is a sophisticated state-sponsored global sanctions bypass campaign underway, we should fully expect that even countries with sanctions may unwittingly become sources of microchips, processors, um, various high-tech forms of navigation um, uh, tools and instruments and, and the like, and that sanctions controls as well as export controls may be bypassed. So yes, it's a problem in some of those countries that are uh, abstaining uh, from sanctions and abstaining in diplomatic circles from condemning Russia, but I don't think it's limited to those jurisdictions because ultimately the sources of some of this technology are very much um, in the West. Are you having to pay closer attention to transactions or the movement of goods being routed by some of these markets, which are, you know, key markets for Standard Chartered? Our global sanctions program accounts for the movement of um, cash and trade transactions in, in all of our corridors uh, uh, and all of the supply chains that we support on behalf of our clients. And therefore, with respect to the Russia sanctions and the Russia sanctions bypass question, we're looking at that globally, not just in countries uh, that may uh, stand out as uh, sympathetic or cooperative with Russia. Uh, in those instances where we are conducting a particular investigation of potential Russian sanctions bypass or any kind of uh, sanctions activity, we always account for the jurisdiction and the local uh, economic and political and even military conditions in that jurisdiction as bearing on the, the risk question. So yes, we will account for the countries uh, involved in a relevant transaction or set of transactions and we are paying heightened attention in those spaces in terms of the types of transactions that are being routed, the corridors of the transactions, to identify potential activities that could indicate sanctions bypass on behalf of the Russian Federation. So I think it's fair enough to conclude from what you've said, Vincent, that there are efforts underway to evade the sanctions by Russia either through these third countries or other way or other means. Let's look in more detail at some of the red flags or schemes that you're seeing that are being used to get around some of the Russian sanctions. Absolutely. And I would say that to the extent, you know, we are seeing them, I wouldn't characterize that at all as unique to standard chartered bank conversations in the industry and with governmental agencies are all reflective of this as a uh, an emergent risk that is likely to continue uh, uh, to persist. Um, that said, when we think about the type of activity we may see, in some ways, it's no different from the conventional red flags that we've always thought about when it comes to money laundering. So I'll use one example. One of our aim points in this space has to do with shell companies, particularly shell companies that are domiciled in jurisdictions 
that may well be in the West or may be in a non-aligned country where the beneficial ownership behind the shell company is obscure or linked to a natural person that appears to have no economic or other ties to the jurisdiction where the company is established and operates. That's a very relevant risk indicator for bypass of sanctions in order to obtain military components or dual use technologies. But it is also a very classic instrumentality of any kind of money laundering scheme, including money laundering to facilitate a sanctions violation. So that's one example of a typology that we're looking to is the, the shell company. Obviously, if there are additional indicators of bypass activity that might be specific to Russia, for example, the types of components that appear, appear to be involved in a given transaction or linkages between or among actors that may be more closely aligned uh, to Russia or to uh, Russian-based economic interests will invite closer scrutiny as to whether more specifically there's a potential Russian sanctions violation at play. Another conventional area that we're mindful of as we think about Russia sanctions bypass has to do with the overall economic sense of a given transaction. So whenever you see a transaction that appears unnecessarily complicated from a commercial perspective, there are just too many parties in the given transaction to achieve the ultimate outcome of whatever the trade or the payment should be. Or where you see documentation that on its face or considered in context has discrepancies or omissions or contradictions. Those are red flags that invite attention, even under normal money laundering investigative contexts, um, but also in the more specialized area that we're talking about now. So what we're seeing is what we've learned over the years in combating financial crime generally is extremely relevant to identifying, pinpointing, and managing the risk of potential sanctions bypass when it comes to the Russian Federation. I want to sort of dig a little deeper now into the reality on the ground and challenges for banks in this current current environment. And I'm just recalling uh, something that a head of sanctions said at a, an event a couple of months back. And they were describing the last 12 months as painful, given the sheer frequency and volume of sanctions. And that, and they also said sometimes there had been three regulatory changes a day. Vincent, I kind of want to get an understanding of what are some of your biggest challenges or frustrations, given the sheer volume of sanctions against Russia and the complexity associated with that? Well, you're exactly right. And in fact, at a recent meeting I attended with a a senior leader from the European Union, um, the, the reality was articulated clearly from that jurisdiction's own perspective that the sanctions regime we're up against in terms of Russia is the most complex ever rolled out. And I think there are at least two reasons for that, maybe three. The first is the suddenness of the imposition of additional sanctions on Russia following the February 2022 attack. I think that was unprecedented. There had been various types of sanctions applied to Russia as a result of Crimea, as well as sanctions under the Magnitsky Act um, and some export controls and, and other limitations. But those had been applied over time in a very 
um, moderated and predictable way. Um, with the attack uh, and, and the shock of the attack, uh, the, the reaction in terms of the imposition of sanctions was voluminous in terms of the number of designations and the speed with which they came. And that itself just created operational challenges in terms of ensuring our lists were ingested properly into our surveillance technology, making sure that our own internal lists were being integrated appropriately with the designations that were coming from OFAC, HMT, EU, and other jurisdictions. Um, so that operational challenge absolutely uh, was a complex one. I will say that over the last year, we have sort of plateaued, and even as we expect additional tranches of sanctions to roll out, we know they're coming, and uh, the regulators themselves have gotten into something of a tempo uh, in terms of issuing sanctions, uh, providing a reasonable time to comply, and us being in a position to ensure our controls are aligned. The other complicated area in an international banking context in particular has to do with different sanctioning authorities coming out with different designations at different times. So hypothetically, uh, in one instance, if His Majesty's Treasury designates a given member or associate of uh, Mr. Putin on the HMT list, it may or may not be the case that OFAC or the European Union are making that designation at the same time and that the designation has the same uh, purpose or impact in as much as it is a, a blocking or a freezing outcome that the designation requires. In the context of a global bank or in correspondent banking where you have multiple institutions engaged in any given transaction, where those institutions are responding to different global regulators and different sanctions laws, you can have a situation where a payment is permissible by one financial institution here in New York City and transmits that payment to another financial institution, say standard chartered, but as we are regulated by our home co uh, country regulator, HMT, we may not be able to process the payment. And that creates confusion in the market. Um, the, the sending institution may say, well, what is it that standard chartered knows about so-and-so that we don't know because we don't see so-and-so on the OFAC list. And so the communication has to go back to the sending institution, clarifying the source of the uh, interdiction of the payment being UK sanctions. Now, if that were to happen two or three times a day, um, probably that's quite manageable by our payment operations experts supported by the compliance sanctions experts in the second line of defense. When that's happening, scores of times a day or more, the confusion in the payment environment uh, was significant for, for a period of time. I'm not saying there was confusion that led to breaches, but there was confusion in terms of the operational impacts of different sanctions rolling out at different times. What we have seen broadly over recent months is that the various authorities have better aligned their rollout of sanctions, and I think they are speaking and communicating uh, clearly with one another and with us in the industry, and broadly we have come to adapt to this new environment.
sounds like a bit of a nightmare to have to deal with. Are you having to do anything differently than you normally would comply with sanctions in the context of the of the Russian sanctions? When it comes to the Russian sanctions and the policies behind them, Anita, we, we've taken a three-prong approach, and I believe other institutions have done this, although uh, perhaps they would express them differently and, and carried them out in, in accordance with their own program uh, imperatives. We have, first of all, our standard sanctions control environment. Uh, comprising really two elements. The first is client due diligence, um, which we account for sanctions risk as well as uh, underlying financial crime risk, as well as the risk of corruption as presented by politically exposed persons who may be associated with a given client or a given account. So we, in our diligence, are of course accounting for the Russian sanctions designations. We're also accounting for the identification of potential or a potential nexus to a Russian sanctions designated entity with entities that are not specifically designated but may pose risk. And we account for that in the diligence process. And then the operational payment operations uh, related control remains transaction screening where every single transaction is evaluated against the sanctions lists, not just the Russia sanctions list, all sanctions, and given payments when identified as having a true match between a party in the transaction and a name on the internal or external lists is either rejected or the funds are frozen. Those two things, diligence and transaction screening, are conventional, traditional controls, and we continue to operate them to comply with Russia sanctions. The next area is a little bit different um, than what we would normally do in a, a standard sanctions context, but it's not without precedent. And I'm referring to uh, a parallel process called transaction monitoring. So for those who don't know, transaction screening occurs in the context of a live payment being executed between and among parties through financial institutions where the payment and its parties are checked to see if they are uh, uh, listed as sanctioned. By contrast, transaction monitoring is a post-execution retrospective review of transactions that have already been processed. The transactions that are reviewed are identified typically by technology that seeks to divine patterns in clusters of payments that are related by common parties or potential indicia of money laundering and other financial crimes. Transaction monitoring is something we are required to do, just as we're required to do transaction screening by uh, laws and regulations that have been in place long before uh, Mr. Putin attacked Ukraine. However, given the pattern or behavior that we suspect may be happening when it comes to the Russian Federation, and its agents seeking to bypass sanctions and thereby thwart screening and diligence efforts by using, for example, shell companies, our transaction monitoring takes on an additional uh, value proposition, if you like, because we are now going to think about transactions that have alerted not just for money laundering, but for potential additional indicia of money laundering linked to 
bypassing sanctions, laws, and regulations coming out of Russia. So that's sort of the second uh, line of effort we've adopted. The first being diligence and transaction screening, and the sec second is thinking about our transaction monitoring uh, to help police the sanctions environment. The third is working with uh, partners in law enforcement. Uh, at Standard Chartered Bank, we have a, a long um, uh, and, and proud set of relationships with the various agencies here in the United States that holds true in the United Kingdom, in the UAE, in Hong Kong, and many of the jurisdictions where we operate. And we meet with them and we work closely with them to obtain whatever insights their work uh, may, may have uh, delivered and that they're in a position to share with us so that we can have a more intelligence-driven approach to our investigative work. That can lead, as transaction monitoring can, to the filing of suspicious activity reports with our national financial intelligence units, as well as to other steps we'll take to protect our institution, um, where we may go back to an intermediary client and follow up with them to see if their controls are in shape to ensure that sanctioned payments and parties are interdicted, or we may take other risk management steps. So that's the three-part strategy that we've applied at Standard Charter to date. And you come from a law enforcement background as well. And I'm sort of wondering whether that plays to your advantage in this kind of context. I mean, are you going to pick up things or pay attention to things that other people within the bank may not, for example? Well, there, there are quite a few of us in the institution who do come from some area in law enforcement or the regulatory community. And it is part of the bank strategy to have an interdisciplinary team in place, so different perspectives and capabilities are brought to bear. Um, so I, I would say there is value to having former prosecutors and federal agents and law enforcement officers and analysts in the institution working on these problems. Um, one of the pitfalls that can happen when you're operating in a high volume, high tempo uh, operational ecosystem is that in the service of keeping up with your casework, um, you become very focused on turnaround times and technical quality controls around investigations. Those things are very important. It is equally important to apply a risk-based approach uh, to every single investigation and look at the facts of every case through the lens of the relevant threat corridor that you're thinking about. And that's true whether you're talking about proliferation activities by North Korea or narcotics trafficking involving a cartel or sanctions bypass involving Russia sanctions violations. So that, that mindset is helpful, um, but it is just part of uh, the overall capability that the team has because expertise in underlying payment operations and payment activities is vital uh, to looking for aberrations, uh, for looking uh, at instances of payments being submitted in a way that seems inappropriate from a commercial, economic, or banking perspective that a former prosecutor like I wouldn't pick up on. You need a banking expert to, to see that type of aberrant behavior and then make the referral to the investigators to, to follow up. And we know historically that sanctions have been problematic for banks and have resulted in some very substantial fines being imposed by U.S. authorities for sanctions violations. I'm wondering, given your depth and breadth of experience on both sides, the law enforcement and the banking side, how satisfied are you that these historical shortcomings 
in sanction screening or automated monitoring systems have been addressed? I think broadly the entire industry, as well as our colleagues in law enforcement and our regulatory supervisors have learned a lot over the last 15 years on what a well-integrated, sustainable, and effective financial crime compliance program really requires. And there's broad acceptance, I think, across the industry um, aligned to the expectations of regulators of what those elements are. Um, so the first is the three lines of defense structure where the, the revenue generating, risk generating, um, business activities sit in the so-called first line of defense or supported by an independent second line of defense overseeing the control environment around those risks uh, and all of whom in turn are under the scrutiny of a third line of defense, typically audit that reports to the board of directors. The emergence of the three lines of defense model over the last decade or so, I think it was greatly improved the quality of risk management uh, in financial crime compliance that maybe existed 10 or 15 years ago across the industry. The other um, change we're seeing is uh, advances in technical capability and know-how on how to use technology within a financial institution to better target transactions and parties that warrant investigation and not expend time and resources um, trying to investigate every payment. Um, because after all, if it's an effectively laundered payment, there won't be anything really to provide a clue. There has to be a much more data-driven, analytics-driven, technology-driven capability in institutions. And I think over the recent years, those capabilities have developed. The last point I would say is that the regulatory community gets better and better in telling the industry what it expects. So to the point of what we're discussing today with Russia sanctions, I've been to meetings with uh, senior members of uh, the U.S. government, HMT, and the European Union in recent weeks and obtained updates from them that have been extremely helpful. And those conversations are ongoing. Um, I'm not sure that was the case 10 or 15 years ago where we had a free flow of information um, from official sources into the industry. The other place where regulatory expectations are becoming more readily understood and more readily complied with has to do with the state of regulation itself. So I'm speaking to you today from New York City uh, and our bank is licensed by the New York State Department of Financial Services. Very helpfully, three or four years ago, actually it's five years ago, the Department of Financial Services enacted a particular rule outlining in plain terms what the expectations are for, as it says in the rule, a monitoring program and a filtering program, which you could read as the AML program and the sanctions program within a bank. So I, I am increasingly confident that the industry and regulators and law enforcement are working better together um, and will continue to do that. Uh, and and we, we also believe that institutions like the Wolfsburg Group, which is a, a 13 member organization of which Standard Chartered is a part, have a part to play through the promulgation of industry best practices as expressed in various uh, papers that are published to the industry, often with input from our regulators. So Vincent, 
I gather that you don't think we're going to see some of those sort of hefty fines again being imposed against banks that we saw historically. I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I myself am not in a position to predict where the uh, priorities are for regulatory or uh, prosecution authorities when it comes to AML and sanctions. Um, for us, it's important to just continue to apply what we've learned and to stay very close to our regulators and to law enforcement. And when we have risks or issues, to be transparent, to self-identify them, promptly remediate them, um, and, and make sure there's transparency with regulators. I think those are the, the right ingredients for Standard Chartered Bank, and I'm, I'm sure others in the industry would have similar views. Can't say, though, that all said, that there won't be enforcement actions in the future. We don't know uh, what the future holds. Any final tips or advice for, for other financial crime and anti-money laundering specialists that are listening to maybe help them navigate this complex sanctioned environment? I, I have one thing that comes to mind, Anita, when it comes to a problem, a compliance problem like the Russia sanctions uh, one presents. And as we've discussed, that problem includes the fact that we don't have comprehensive sanctions. We have targeted sanctions with lots of designations. We have the Russian Federation very much engaged at times lawfully in global commerce with countries that are otherwise considered partners uh, of countries that are imposing sanctions. Um, that complexity uh, in part is managed through strategies like the one I talked about, diligence, screening, transaction monitoring, and intelligence work. But another important part of the strategy has to do with risk appetite. I think it's very important for senior compliance leaders to partner with those in the first line of defense who are setting business strategy and objectives early and continuously and in an ongoing way to think about what level of risk the institution is willing to accept as it thinks about expanding either new products or moving into new client segments or altering its footprint or reaching into markets where it doesn't have a presence to do business cross-border. There has to be an articulated appetite to rationalize those types of strategic business decisions in a complex environment where, as with Russia's sanctions, uh, there is complexity and there is a very high rate of change in compliance requirements. Risk appetite and strategy, I think, ultimately uh, are as important uh, as controls and investigations are. And that, that would be my, my one thought that we haven't covered today, Anita. Well, Vincent, I really appreciate you taking time out of your, no doubt, very busy schedule to talk to us about this very important topic and challenge that banks are sort of now operating in this sort of very highly sanctioned environment. That brings us to the end of this episode. So thanks for tuning into Banking in the Shadows and our discussion on Russian sanctions. And I'd like to say special thanks to our guest, Vincent Heinz from Standard Chartered Bank. Thanks, Vincent. Thank you, Anita. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Banking in the Shadows, a monthly podcast available from thebanker.com, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.